This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Jonathan Henshaw currently lives in Edinburgh, Scotland. He spent the most of his career in London, grew up in Yorkshire. And he's a classic individual in the United Kingdom who... Loves the outdoors, but never got to hunt. The United Kingdom is, is quite a nuanced system when it comes to sort of people becoming hunters. Land access is difficult. Firearm certification is quite onerous. There's just lots of barriers of entry to becoming a hunter. But Jonathan wanted to become a hunter. And so he engaged Arthur Petherbridge that we've had on the podcast at uh, an experience called the Wild Order, in which Jonathan got to hunt for the first time. And so I just wanted to have a conversation like we typically do with someone who has decided to go from being a non-hunter to being a hunter. Why? Why did you choose to span that chasm between someone who picks up their meat essentially from the grocery store and is not engaged in the death of that animal to being one in a part of the death of an animal understanding where your food comes from. And for Jonathan, it's essentially that. He wanted to know and engage in the food chain. Enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years 
is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. He's like Velcro that just wants to be near me all the time. Let me kick him out of this room and then I'll uh, get started. <laughs> yeah, Redigion Ridgebacks are amazing, amazing dogs, man. I have seen some really big Rhodesian Ridgebacks in my time back in South Africa. He's pretty small. He's in the about 40 kilos. But, I mean, some of the ones that when we're looking like one of the 10 month tall pup at 55 kilos, absolutely enormous. I have seen Ridgebacks almost the size of Great Danes in South Africa. Jesus. And they are like, obviously, you know Ridgeback, right? They're just super, super friendly, super loving, freaking lap dogs. If they want, yeah. if you allow them to be lap dogs, they'll be lap dogs, but incredibly intimidating dogs, too. Yeah. He's got this thousand yards there, like, where he just, like, his face furrows up and his ears go up and he just look, he looks through you. And I think if, if yeah, anyone would be, would be pretty, pretty intimidated. But then I've got two little kids. I've got a seven-month-old and a three-year-old, and he is—he couldn't be better with them. So it's nice. That's incredible. That's incredible. Well, Jonathan Henshaw, um, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. This is the kind of—these are the kind of conversations that I love to have. And I had one similarly yesterday. In that, you don't know me from a bar of soap. I don't know you from a bar of soap. We have not interacted. We have not spoken before this opportunity uh to chat on you know on a podcast essentially right yeah it's awesome no i'm excited to be here thanks for having me on and yeah it was uh, when arthur mentioned it i was like yeah i'd love to talk about the experience i've just had so yeah pleased to be here so jonathan give us a little bit of background of who you are sort of your occupation what you do where you live that kind of stuff yeah, yeah so my name's uh, johnny jonathan henshaw 35. I'm currently living in Edinburgh, so I've just moved up to Edinburgh after living in London for about the past decade. Um, in terms of occupation, quite a standard corporate job. I've worked in sales ever since I've left university. Um, and yeah, oh uh, yeah, like I say, always worked in sales and always in like, I suppose, quite a um, bit of a paradox to what we're going to be talking about today, but working in like consumer packaged goods. So like the the opposite end of food, as you would potentially think about it that way. So, yeah. So, um, you work in the food chain? Yeah, I work in the food chain, yeah. So, I work in like, m like mass manufacturing and sales for a snack bar brand here in the UK. Amazing. Amazing. Pretty corporate lifestyle, go into the like, job nine to five. Yeah, kind of. I think it's, well, definitely over the last few years, it's become a, quite a lot more flexible. Um, and I've just moved into a role that'll be like fully remote based with the travel around down to London and then travel around Europe. But yeah, quite a, a traditional nine to five corporate role as you will. What, uh, what got you out of London? What forced you into moving to Edinburgh? Yeah, well, a few things. I mean, like London, well, I love London. We were just talking about it today. We miss it quite a lot, but um, like three things predominantly. So I think it was getting pretty expensive, especially with two kids and like, you know, especially yeah. when you start considering like childcare and nursery. So, you know, with that and then the houses and living in a flat and kind of wanting to make the move into a house and have a bit more space and a bit of proximity to nice outdoor space kind of prompted the move. And we've got a lot of friends and a lot of friends uh, up in Edinburgh. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty good place to be, you know, big city, but great proximity to the outdoors. So you can be up north to where we actually went for the, for the week away with, the, with the, um, the experience, which is only like an hour and a half, two hours. So, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely a different vibe to London. 
The we where did you grow up in the UK? In London? Yeah, so, no, so I grew up in Yorkshire, so just about three hours north of London. Um, so yeah, all, all my life in in Yorkshire, and then moved down to to London after university. And after uni, did a bit of like the quintessential traveling around the world uh, for a year, a bit of backpacking with a mate, did Australia, South Africa, places like that. But yeah, settled down in settled down in in London in about two thousand two thousand ten. It was. So growing up in Yorkshire, not really an outdoors kind of guy. Yeah, no, no, that's, so yeah, it was quite. It wasn't necessarily you know fully rural, but kind of like a suburban, like rural setting. So like fields and forests close by. So I've always liked the outdoors and always had a bit of a an interest or a passion distilled in me, whether it's family, friends, but always been quite outdoorsy in a sense. And I think you know. Grew up when whilst we were growing up, some close family friends had a, a pig farm, so I used to go do summer work on the pig farm. And yeah, I, I think I would always categorize myself as being quite outdoorsy, but um, but, but never, never hunted. Ne- so I think the, probably the closest I've ever got to it was on the pig farm. Like I used to go ratting with a couple of Jack Russells, <laughs> <laughs> and then I probably shot a two-two now and again, but never never hunted in that sense. No, especially not for my, not for food. For those that may not be familiar with sort of the UK system, can you allude to maybe why, give a reason why you didn't engage in that lifestyle? I think it was just never, it, it, was, never, it was never on the radar, to be honest with you. It's, it, I okay. think I started to develop a bit of an interest in it. I think probably like, uh, like around 2010, 2012, listening to podcasts, always been really interested in food. And through that, started following different people that were interested in chefs and then starting to see a little bit more about venison. And then I think I was up in Scotland, actually, for a New Year's, probably like 2014, 15. And my friend did a, did a backstrap for, for New, Year's Eve, New Year's Eve dinner. And then I think since then, I was like, oh, this is great. Started buying a bit of venison, just started becoming more and more interested in it. And I think through probably the interest in starting to get into it, I, there's not actually that much information out there in the sense of like how to how to access it in the UK. I think if you were yeah. you know, if you grew up in a traditional outdoor background, whether you're you know a farmer or you know you were in a, a bit of a landowner, I think it might be more prevalent. But if you kind of from where I was, you know, like a fairly suburban setting, it's just never it wasn't even on the radar as much. And then as I've tried to kind of go into this journey, even finding information out now is is quite quite challenging in a sense. So the reason we have you on this podcast is because Jonathan Henshaw decided in the last couple of months to go from being a non-hunter to being a hunter, to someone who chose to take the life of an animal. Is your wife, what's your wife in in sort of... uh, where does she sit in this whole like idea of hunting? Well, let me let me back up. How did where does she sit in the as you were deciding to like go into this experience that we'll talk about? Yeah. What she, was she like? You're crazy, or was she like, no, that I think that's something we you need to do. No, I, oh, absolutely supportive. I think maybe the only challenge was leave, you know leaving home for a week with a seven month old. I think that was probably the the only challenge. But yeah, like fully supportive, like, you know, you know, when I get my hooks into something or become interested, that's me and I want to pursue it and I want to learn more about it. And I think 
irrespective of what it is, she would be supportive of that. And I was telling the guys on the course a few years ago, I'd kind of been interested in a bit more accessible down in London, but spearfishing and done a weekend away of a course of that as well. And I think it's just, a, for me, like a connection to food and like getting my own food and feeling a little bit less removed from that overall process and chain. And then being why more did you feel like? Why did you feel like you needed to do that? Why did you feel like you needed to get closer to your food? You, obviously, you, you work day in and day out in the food yeah. chain, right? Yeah. I think... It's a good question. I th- it, for me, it's just, I, I enjoy it. I enjoy cooking and I, I, I love food. And uh, I think a, a part of that is like a connection to what you're cooking. And I think it's almost like the story that you tell with food in the fact that I, I've got out and I, I've harvested this animal. I've got this and I've processed it. I'm invested in it end to end. I'm almost, you know, I know exactly where it's come from and how it and and how it's arrived on my plate. I, I don't know something about that. I, I find quite engaging and exciting. And I think, as you do, like I've got interested more and more interested in cooking. You get more and more interested in the ingredients that you cook. And I think, outside of buying things like online, like you know, being more interested in where my beets coming from, this felt like the absolute step that I could take mm-hmm. in terms of mm-hmm. putting food on the table for it. Mm-hmm. Did any of your circles of friends, as you were, again, getting ready to do this, any of your circles of friends were like, didn't really understand why you were doing it? I think the only, I think most of my friends would probably have a relatively similar mindset on this and would be quite interested in, you know, going away and doing something like this. I think the only one was, I think my dad, who was just like, oh, he's never been, never interested in him. And he's like, oh, I'm not sure I would, I could do that. But I think, you know, he, it was more from a perspective of. But he's still a meat eater, right? He exactly. still enjoys. Yeah. But I think it's from a perspective of what different types or maybe how hunting in the UK is or has been portrayed in the past. Because it isn't, it's a relatively niche thing in the UK, I would say. And bear in mind, I'm a complete noob on this stuff as well, right? But my. A perspective would be it's still relatively niche, and even when we were up there, Sam talking to like there's less than two or three hundred professional deer stalkers in the UK, and you know it, it's niche. And I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's then the perception around it would be your traditional game hunting to have a mount on your wall, and this is something a little bit different to that. And maybe that's the pers- perspective to break. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. So. You decided to go from being a non-hunter to a hunter, yep. and you got in. How did you get in touch with, or how did you find out about Arthur and the Wild Order? And for everyone's yep. edification, the Wild Order is this sort of new program that a guy called Arthur uh, Petherbridge is putting together, which really is creating an opportunity for people like you, Jonathan, to say, "I'm interested in getting into hunting." The barrier of entry in the United Kingdom is much, much, much higher than the United States because of access and almost a class-based perception around hunting and obviously all your firearm regulations and all the things that you have to step through. The Wild Order sort of just created this mechanism by which, hey, let's, let's give you the instruction, let's give you the place, let's give you the opportunity. And then, you know, the breakdown, you know, how do you yeah. take that animal to where you needed to take? How, yeah. how did you find out about it? 
Yeah. So I think, I mean, it, it started with food, essentially. I, I found Arthur and maybe a few of the other guys, actually, that were coaching on the course um, just through various different Instagram accounts that I followed that were with food. So there's Hunter, Gather, Cook, which was a kind of, I don't know if Arthur had talked about that when you've spoken to him, but it's essentially a, outside of London, a guy that had kind of left the city and got into cooking and very, like, focused on wild game cooking, cooking over fire. And I'd followed him because I'd had friends that worked in the, in the restaurant world. Followed Arthur through him because I was getting quite interested in, in kind of learning to go deer stalking. And then through Arthur, ended up following Sam, who was the head games keeper up at Kildamori where we went. And yeah, I, I saw them, they, they, they put up the course and it was exactly what I was hoping it was going to be. It was a, and not only just going out for a week, and learning how to all about the process of deer stalking, but it was more challenging the accessibility and how you can actually take this up as a hobby in the UK. That which you know, even with all the googling in the world, it's still quite challenging. Even you know, even to find a route through to kind of do this and make it a, a, a part of your lifestyle going forward. And I think even after doing the course, I definitely feel I've got a clearer route, but it's still challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about, because I'm always interested in someone's experience the first time they go hunting. So tell me about, you know, give us an idea of of that experience. Like, has it led up to the store? What did you do the couple of days beforehand? Um, Yeah, Yeah, so I think we, I I, I ended up arriving quite late. So I, I drove in and pitch black into the Kildamori estate and I, I suppose I'm not I'm not particularly uh familiar with like the remoteness of like the Scottish Highlands but you know this was eight it was eight miles from the closest made road to the the lodge at the estate where we were staying so like I'm driving down this kind of single track road in the middle of the night you know opening deer fences and it's just yeah could have been anywhere eventually managed to get to the lodge got settled in for the evening but you walk into this kind of pretty grand what was you'd imagine like victorian hunting lodge and there's some pretty significant stag heads on the wall and no one was up so i was kind of just took myself off found my room and took myself off to bed yeah and then in the morning kind of coming down and meeting all of the other people on the course was just it was really interesting it's just because of that it was just a real mix of people and everyone had kind of different motivations for, for wanting to be there but it was just nice to see such a different mix of people all kind of were talking they, what about were they, What were their backgrounds like? Yeah, so you had so it was a mix of ages, I'd say, from I think probably the youngest was around 21, 22. I think the eldest guy on the course was probably like early 70s. Wow. So, you know, like there's, there was nine of us in the end. And you had everything from one of the guys was... Um, a deer, like a deer warden on a deer park in the UK and worked for the local council down not far outside of uh, Manchester. And then you had like former CFOs of multinational businesses. So it's just like a real nice blend from all over the UK and a mix of male and female as well, which was, was, was good to see. Uh-huh. Um, so yeah, we always sat down for breakfast, breakfast, kind of all talking about the motivations, a bit of introduction, so on and so forth. And Arthur and the guys did a pretty good job of like laying out what the plans were for, for the week. So first port call. What were the general they, motivations of the individuals? Like 
nor were they all centered around what you were there for, which is the food aspect of things? I think for the most part, I'd, say, I'd probably say 50, 60% were that. And I think some of the guys were just like, as a group, had wanted to do something like this for a long time. And it was like a point of like coming together over kind of like a unique experience. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd say mostly mostly like an interest in like or bringing or stepping closer towards the the food that they're eating okay okay yeah so the guys kind of yeah orientated us on the course for the week and took us down to the range and you know had some time on on the range down by the lock at Kildamori and I think for a lot of had you shot rifles before like I say I think uh, the last time I shot a rifle was probably mid-2000s on on a pig farm like a two-two or something, but this this definitely felt a bit different. But the guys were um, they were really good in the tuit, like you know, tuition, like setting up the targets and give, talking us through how they're set up and giving us some like some time on the range and just general safety around, you know, like just just end to end, it was pretty good. So we had some time on the range and then we were back up to the the, the house and then they split us into groups. Um, and yeah, and then we headed up the hill, um, which which was great. And just two, I think we went out in two groups, and um, two groups, and we went out with the the headkeeper and the underkeeper, and we're split into the two groups. And we just took us up on the hill, went into groups, and I think based on the guys that came the night before, that they had the opportunity to shoot first, and did some pretty pretty hard walking up the hill, and stayed back from the first group as they went off. Um. We had a full day out on the hill, essentially, um, and we, the Will, who was in my group, shot the first deer, and then it was they they went ahead, and he went off with Ryan and shot the deer. Were you with and him then, when he shot his first deer? No, we 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 were back in the tree line, and then we met him afterwards. Oh, and we okay, went over okay. To the an, the animal, and they showed us how to growl at the animal in the field, and then we took it off the hill. Down and what was that like? You, obviously, that's your first gutting experience, right? Yeah, I mean, it was. I think just what was the thing that I'll always remember was the setting of that, and that was Will's first deer as well. When we were top, top, like halfway up the hill below a ridge line, overlooking this lock, perfect weather, and Will just kind of having this this moment of like reflection, and he was just they blooded him. As as is the tradition in Scotland, and then dragging the the animal off the hill, and it, yeah, it was just um, I felt even happy for Will. Like I think he was like I could see he he was happy, but he was also kind of taking in the moment and the experience and the significance of it, and it it just got me excited and stoked for the week ahead. You know, like I think oh this is this is something I'm I'm hoping I'm going to get the opportunity to do, but also it, Jonathan, it, so, someone that may not be like familiar with hunting at all we have a lot of people who are non-hunters and whatnot and i like to really explore sort of things that they may be sort of thinking about when they hear someone talking you said you were happy for will mm. oh yeah oh you know a lot of people would hear you say that and if they're not under if they don't understand they're hearing you say i was happy for will to kill something mm-hmm. is that what you were happy about no, it, it wasn't. It, it, I think that's too. That puts just a. It's too specific on that as the the outcome. I was happy for Will to 
take his first year, something that he's wanted to do in a long time in that setting and knowing that, like like me, he was interested in taking the, the meat away from that animal, learning more about the process, learning more about deer, learning more about accessibility. But it was kind of, it was almost ha- happy, and this sounds cliche, but it's because it was like the start of something. Yeah. Um, even if it, yeah. even though it wasn't your journey, it was probably also the start of it was the start of your journey. Even though you exactly. weren't pulling the trigger, right? It, exactly, because it's the you know it's the first time I've ever seen a an animal like a, a an animal or a deer or an animal of that size being shot and, and killed. So you know it's yeah it's definitely a significant moment for me, and then also kind of gives me a you know a perspective of what's to come and how am I going to feel in that moment and how is that moment's going to happen and so on and so forth, you know. And I think also people don't realize, you mentioned a little bit of this, the setting and the scenery, you almost are like gobsmacked by the places that you get to do this in, number one. Yeah. And number two, the hard work that happens once the trigger is pulled, right? Yeah, exactly. I think that the, the place is definitely... The, or the place and the setting, and it's, yeah, it's, so the landscape's awe-inspiring. And, you know, obviously you're with other people and there's, there's Alex was taking pictures and, you know, people are, are kind of, but we're still connected, but it, it's just not, it's not a typical experience. And so I think that's something that probably contributed to my, like, you know, happiness for Will in that moment. Um, and also then, yeah, the hard work, even like, you know, walking up onto the first hill, like I like the robust challenge of it, you know, and I think I was coming into this experience. I, I never wanted it to be, you know, like I just drive somewhere and I'm straight onto an, I, I want, I want it to be hard. I enjoy the, the I want, enjoyed the time on the hill, enjoy the time walking. And I think it's almost the challenge of it represents, I suppose, as much as the reward has taken the meat away, you know? Hundred percent, hundred percent. So once that happens, it's it's. Is it your turn now? No, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it wasn't. It was Theo's turn after after that. So I was kind of like you know getting more and more excited and in, 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 at the back. But you know it's got, it's a long process and we're walking well, covering quite a bit of ground. So we took we dragged Will's beast off the hill down to the the pickup, and then we were off walking again whilst Jack, one of the, the, the gillies, dealt with like taking it back to the larder. And then yeah, we were walking we were walking again for quite a, quite a while. And then Ran and Theo got onto a couple of hinds up the hill. So like with Will, they just stepped off ahead and and went a little bit ahead of us and we just sat and waited. You know, we sat and and I think part of just sitting and waiting and taking in the scenery in the moment, you know, and then heard a heard a couple of shots and we were up the hill again and, and had the same experience with, with Theo. So, but by this time in the day, it was, it was getting a bit later. So we headed back to, walked back to the lodge, took the, took the deers down to the larder and start to see a bit of the process of kind of the, mm-hmm. the butchery, which was, well, well just the, well, the, the, the initial dressing and then the butchery, which was, I suppose, a, a, another new experience, you know, outside of seeing carcasses hanging up in a butcher's window, you, you don't get that close, you know. Mm. Mm. So, did the, the, I assume through the course they taught you how to break it down, all the different pieces, all the meats, all the cut. Yeah, exactly. So I think it, 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 I would say it was a, 
a really nice balance of both of those things, so between time on the hill and time in the larder, and for those that shop animals in the larder, you know, working on their own dinner, uh, their own deer, and then also we had like group sessions where the guys had shot a few few deers the day the the day before it arrived and would put aside for exactly how you skin, how you break down, quarter. Um, and, th- and that was the larder kind of side of the butchery. And then we had some specific butchery in the evenings about breaking down haunches into the different steaks. And yeah, that was really interesting. The, um, so, so tell me about your, your, ex- the, the stalk and, and your sort of, yeah. your, your first take and your first kill. Yeah. So we, we, after we were back at the lodge, it was getting quite late and the, the sunset's pretty, um, pretty early in Scotland at that time of year. But the snow started to come down and the light was fading a bit. But Ran, myself and Theo went out as a group. We were walking up to a, a, low, a low box up on the hill on a different side of, of Kildamori. And we were kind of walking up this uh, pony path, essentially. It was like snow was coming down pretty hard, actually, at that time. And, you know, a combination of cold, wet, snow. And we were just walking along and talking about the day. And then... Ran, I don't know how he does it. I'm sure, like you probably have a, the same, like seeing things on the landscape that I couldn't even imagine seeing. You know, even if I'd spent <laughs> five, even if I'd spent five hours there, I wouldn't have been able to see the stuff that he was picking out. And Ran suddenly hit the deck, and he's like, "Down, down, down!" And I was, it, it, Ran sets the rifle up, and there was about, I think it was about 171 meters away. There was a, a hind two hinds and a calf and I think Ran and I were actually lying in a puddle like getting <laughs> absolutely soaked um, and there was two hinds and a calf and I think Ran talked me onto the the hind on the on the right hand side and she was stood behind it was essentially it wasn't a deer fence as much as just a a stake in the ground and she kept moving but like back and forward on the between it, so it felt felt like an eternity. It probably was only about sixty sixty odd se- seconds. But eventually, she stepped out, and I, I took my shot, and she she went she went straight down. Um, what were you thinking in the moment? Were you actually thinking anything? Because a lot of people are like it's just you get so. Um, uh, I think it was. I was thinking about. Two things: don't don't fuck it up, <laughs> and then I was thinking about just being calm. Why didn't you want to fuck it up? For for the animal, for for no other reason than making sure that you know everything that we've been taught in the morning. I was trying to execute that in the way that would give that animal the best chance of having a a, a quick death. Did you but, feel the pressure around you, like Ran and Theo watching you? No. No, I think it, it, it wasn't, it definitely wasn't external pressure. It was definitely an, like a feeling. I just wanted to do it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, and it's funny, I, I, I always have this perception that after you take the first shot, you would immediately be able to see, well, you can see straight through the scale, oh, that she's down. But I was very much listening to Ran, who was, you know, on his binos being like, oh, she's down. And I was kind of like a sense of relief, but it was immediately then because she was with her calf. Ran like reload, quick reload, and the calf had she'd 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 run, I don't know, maybe twenty meters off, but then come back, and it was kind of waiting 
waiting a similar sort of waiting for that moment. Shot the calf. She went down. We kind of took that moment afterwards where we kind of stood up and Ram was like, "Good job, great. Let's let's have a walk up the hill and see and see how we're doing." Walked up. I think we got about sixty meters away, and Hind Hind was down. She was she she was dead, but the the calf was still alive. She was she was up, but like she was not standing up. She was down, but her head was still up. So yeah, yeah. run out straight down again. He he put me back onto the the calf, and had to headshot the calf at about forty meters. Which I think that part of the experience kind of was almost more significant for me of wanting to do that part right to ensure that I wasn't prolonging this any further. Yeah. So for somebody that just listened to you shoot a hind, a cow, essentially, and then a calf, a fawn, mm-hmm. a lot of people are like, well, why would you do that? Yeah. Why would you shoot the calf? You know, the calf was probably weaned off, uh, probably would have survived. Give the context there, because I think it's important from a UK yeah. perspective to give that context. Yeah. So, so I was essentially doing everything we talked with Arthur, Sam, and Ram. If we if we shoot behind and they don't feel from a deer management perspective that that the calf would survive in that situation, we have to shoot calves as well. And they asked us at the front, you know, like, how does that make everyone feel? Do you feel comfortable with that? This is something that's just part of essentially the experience of what we're going we're going to be have to do. And that's not you know wasn't the wasn't the case for all of the guys that took deer on on that course, but yeah, it's something I um yeah I think it it, it definitely stops and makes you think. But uh, I suppose it was it I I'm deferring to the experience of Arthur yeah. Sam Rand that this is the best way to manage this. This is what is right for those animals, and this is part of what I suppose being a hunter's about. Did they explain things from a management perspective in terms of the, the deer numbers that they have to take every single year? Yeah, there was, a, I think there's quite a lot of like, there's a lot of, a lot, it was quite a technical, there was many different elements of like how they manage deer on that estate. Um, and I'd, I'd probably do a bad job of trying to regurgitate it all. But no, think, but that's one of the reasons why taking a calf in that yes. scenario is not something like America where you wouldn't typically ever shoot a fawn here in America yeah. because there's, you know, you're just letting them grow. Yeah. But there, there's very strict quotas and strict numbers of animals yeah. that you have to take. And yeah. when given the opportunity, regardless of whether it's a hind or a calf, mm-hmm. the number is a number. Yeah. And they're reducing it to make sure that the habitats and the ecosystem is not degraded beyond what it needs to be. And Excuse me. A lot of these places, if they do not hit their numbers privately, then the government will come in and hit their numbers for them. Yeah, and think the thing that I was most like when when we when because the, there was two hinds and two hinds and a calf, and ran ran talked me in onto the hind with the calf because he felt that the condition of that animal was m- much worse than the condition mm-hmm. of the animal. And that we were, man- in a sense, I mean, like, you know, the snow was coming in and we ended up having, you know, enough snow on that the rest of the week that was almost up to you 
to your waist. And I think the perspective of that animal wouldn't have necessarily made it through the winter was kind of a different layer or, you know, different level of experience coming through. And this is how we manage the population of deer. We look at the health of the animal, make decisions based on that, not just overall numbers and quotas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to break down your own animal? Yeah, so we, it was, yeah, so it was interesting. So when we got up to them both, I think, because I not obviously had the chance and earlier in the day, um, Jack, one of the gillies, had growled the deer in the field and shown us how to do it. But Ran was like, do you want to do it? And I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. And he kind of talk, talked to me through it. And man, it was for, fortunate enough to do it on both animals, the hind and the calf. And then there was only three of us and we couldn't get anyone on the radio. So we ended up dragging, having to drag them off the hill a couple of kilometers. So it was Ran and I with the hind. who was about, I think she was 63 kilos. And then uh, Theo took the, the calf, I think, uh, basically using, like sliding her along the snow on the way down. Um, mm. But yeah, it was, you know, it was much like being, I was almost glad in a way of doing it, doing it in that way, opposed to, mm-hmm. you know, having a quad come up and, you know, or come and pick us up. You know, I think it was, it felt like, I don't know, maybe it, there's no right or wrong or applying too much like sentiment or emotion around it sure 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 i want i wanted to as part of the experience i would feel like you you earn this you know it's hard step into it and and do it and i think that almost made the experience or for my first year more memorable in a way how amazing because i know you'd you'll remember this very and i wasn't even there but i can i can because based on what I've done, how amazing was it when you did grolic the animal in the snow, in the freezing cold, and the steam is coming out of that animal, yeah. and yeah. the heat of the animal on your hands, in sort of juxtaposed against your hands probably being freezing yeah. because of yeah. the snow. Yeah, and I think even just, I think people think probably um, perspectives of hunting very much is just about the shot. And then it is, that is, well, less than a fraction of a second of the actual overall experience. And Well said. I, I think there's something that you say, and this is part of the connection to food, right? I was talking about like, there's a, it's a lot different than, you know, peeling back a bit of cellophane from a steak you've bought at the supermarket. Like, like you're, in, you're in the blood, you're in the guts. You, you're doing this in in the wild where this animal lived and was raised and where it's been eating. You like it, it's 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 hard. It is it's hard to describe, but it, it, I think it's almost a more part of, important part of the experience. Have you had the pleasure of feeding that deer that you killed to your family yet? Yes. Well, yeah. So we. Um, we went away at New Year's with uh, there's a group of 12, 12 of us, like 12 adults, seven, seven kids, six kids. And uh, I did both back straps off the beast for, for dinner. And, you know, I think it was like, you know, well, my mate's a chef, thankfully, and I like cooking, but, you know, some things you just want done right, right, for certain right. moments. <laughs> and, yeah, just to sit down at a table with a group of friends and talk about the, you know, here's, here's the 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 beast that I went and got a few weeks ago and talk about the experience and then I'm just uh, defrosting a, a parve um, steak tonight for my, me and my wife. It's certainly different, huh? 
It's oh, certainly yeah. different that you know that your hands, you know exactly where the meat came from. You know who touched it, you know who prepped it, you know yeah. everything about it. Exactly. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, as an experience, it's definitely like to your point. I don't, I, I don't think you'll, something you'll never forget. So, uh, welcome to the tribe now, hey? Thank you very much. You have a responsibility now, based on what you've learned, to continue to, you know, push this message of who we are as hunters. And uh, you learned it the right way, and you speak about it the, the, the right way. Um, and um, you, have the, you, know, you have the knowledge now and the, and the respect when someone you know, that's not a hunter is like, well, why would you do something like that? You, know? you mm. now have a different perspective on how you could engage that individual. So. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, um, yeah, it's just a start now. So it's, now for me, it's about finding the next steps in this and finding my own way through. And I think as a, as a first point, the experience that Arthur and the guys provided, I, 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 ca I can't fault it. Amazing, Jonathan. Well, welcome to the tribe again. Thank you for Thank um, you much, coming on here. You know, we like to have short, sharp conversations with people that just have good experiences and explain sort of why they, they've become a hunter. And you're certainly in that, in that category. So nice. thank you. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Take it easy. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening. As always, leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.